Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin a new series of studying the resurrection right here on the heels of our celebration of Resurrection Sunday. As we begin today, we will look at how the Apostle Paul communicated salvation to the church in Rome and how the fact of Jesus' resurrection plays a central role in his encouragement to the church to wait for the redemption of their bodies while they embrace the new life of the Spirit. Thanks for joining us today as we'll look at a few passages in Romans chapter 8 to help reframe our understanding of the ultimate goal and hope of our Christian faith. The other day we were uh, riding in my truck and uh, my wife says, what is that smell? Something dying here? And I didn't quite have the same sensitivity that she did. Uh, but sure enough, something, something was a little rank. Something wasn't kind of adding up right. And so we <clears throat> began to investigate that a little bit. And lo and behold, we found out it was coming from my son's boots. That's where it was coming from. Uh, the boots got wet with snow and they stayed out and they stayed soggy and they stayed wet and became a nice petri dish for all kinds of little stinks coming from them. So uh, the, the trouble is when you're uh, riding in that, you notice it right away, but you soon forget about it. And uh, I forgot about it until the next time we got in and oh, man, we got to get rid of these boots, man. So we went to the store, chucked out the boots, bought a new pair and I got home, showed my wife, look, I'm... I got him new boots. And she said, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but guess what else he needs? <laughs> new shoes as well. It's amazing how fast kids wear things out, isn't it? I'm not used to this. This is incredible. So, uh, um, I mean, just coming apart all over the place. As I was looking at uh, my 10-year-old shoes here, it reminded me of when I was in school and playing basketball. I can remember one time I was um, going down the court and my, uh, the, the, the whole bottom flap of the shoe came off. It's just hanging by the heel, flopping around, right? Now, what do you do in that instance if you're on the court? You, you don't have a whole lot of options, right? I mean, I guess you could sit down and cry, right? That's, a, that's an option. You could, uh, you know, just walk off and hang your head and feel sorry. Or you can do what any good uh, youper would do. Yeah. Right here. This stuff's incredible. You know that? So uh, it, do, it doesn't fix it, but I took a good dose of duct tape, wrapped it right around the toes, right, to the point where, hey, it's going to get the job done. And even though I looked forward to the, my new pair, right, I really needed a new pair. Uh, look, the ones I got are the ones I got. And I can't sit with my head down. I can't cry. I can't step out of the game. I got to what? Keep. I got to keep playing, right? I got to keep running up and down the court, whether or not. It's easy, this is what I've got. And with a little bit of help, I'm able to do it. I see this as a metaphor for the way in which we exist in this world. Um, our bodies break down, amen? Sometimes it feels like the plastic's hanging off of the bodies, right? And uh, things don't work the way they're supposed to. I, I've talked to many of you, some people up to uh, 10 pills. Uh, who could beat 10 pills? Show our hands. Uh, 15 pills a day, 20 pills a day. I, Fritz ain't putting his hand down over there. He's just keeping it up. Um, We all face the reality recognizing that things are not right. And these bodies are full of corruption. And we are in need of new ones. Amen? Amen. We're in need of new ones. Uh, 
It used to be that I could go to McDonald's when I was a kid and just eat anything, and I was fine. I go to McDonald's now, and the plumbing doesn't work the way it should anymore, right? Are you guys with me? The, the world that we have been born into is a world of corruption. And the bodies that we have are bodies that have been sown in corruption. In the, in the garden, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And God had set a rule. Do you remember what it was? If you, if you eat any tree, any of them you can eat except this one. Don't eat from this one. For the day in which you eat of it, you will. Do you remember? You will surely die. In Hebrew it says, you will surely die dead. As if there was another way of dying, right? <laughs> um, however, when, when you look at this instance, when you go back and examine the garden, you will see these two people who have been infused with something no other creature has. The God that can speak the world into existence, breathe his own breath into their nostrils. Such that they became living beings. He said, we will make man in our own image. No other creature had that. There's something very special about mankind on earth. That they carry a nature unique from any other creature. Such they're physical like the rest of the physical creation. The same way trees have a certain flesh and birds have a certain flesh. He gave mankind a certain flesh. But unique among the creation. God gave mankind his spirit as well. Like the angels that don't have bodies who are spirits, God put his spirit, the spirit of man, into this creature. I'll make sure I don't sound confusing on this. It doesn't mean that Adam was God, all right? That's not what that means. But it does mean that it's unique, such that the place where heaven and earth touch is seen in no other than Adam and Eve. And they broke the rule. They ate from the wrong tree. Now, you know your history of this. You read Genesis. Did they die that moment? Yes or no? It's a trick question, by the way. Did they die that moment? Yes or no? Good. Ah, yeah, I got it now, yeah. So they did not die physically, right? But you need to recall that humanity is more than just physical. Humanity is spiritual as well. In that moment, they died spiritually. They were separated from God. And we know this to be true because you might recall in the, in the garden it said their eyes were open. And what did they feel? They did not feel glory. They felt shame because now a part of them had died. Their spirits were no longer living. And by living, I mean able to commune with God. They had dead spirits now. Non-responsive spirits to God. The willingness might be there, but the capacity wasn't. They died. That moment, just as God said they would, they died spiritually. And yet they lived physically. And every member of their offspring continues with that same nature, that same corruption, because God came and he looked for them, remember? And he goes and he says, I have to place a curse over the creation now. And so over the ground he placed a curse. What did the ground do? What did the ground do wrong? Imagine if you were the earth at that point saying, that ain't fair. Punish them. Why are you punishing us? Us. I mean, what is the earth? Why are you punishing me, the earth, right? Because earth didn't do anything wrong. But you see, God put man in rulership over the creation. And now man gave in and lost his ability to rule. So the 
So the ground becomes cursed. The serpent becomes cursed. The woman becomes cursed. The man becomes cursed. That's the bad news. You guys know what gospel means? It means good news. So the bad news is every one of us will die because of sin. Sin that we have inherited. Sin that has been imputed to us in our own individual guilt for what we do. We'll all die because of that. The gospel and the good news is that Jesus came to take your death and exchange it for his life. And that's the good news. But it gets better. There's a part of the gospel that we have left uncovered, that we have not looked into enough. And it's the understanding that even on this side of eternity, you and I, we experience new life. Anybody here who has come to faith later in life, you probably know better than most what it's like to live without God and what it's like to live in fellowship with God. And would you trade that for anything? For you know, you can remember, for some of us who have been Christians for a long time, we're not really aware of that stark contrast. But the new life that you have here is only half of it. It's only half. The spirit that you have will never die, but your body... I'm I'm making a mess up here with this right now. Your body's still going to wear out. Your body is still in need of repair and renewal. It's in need of resurrection. For these next four Sundays, we're going to evaluate the implications of what the resurrection of Jesus means for you and I. And my hope is, this is what my goal is. My goal is to try to reframe what we look for. That's my goal. To reframe how we think of life, how we think of death, and what the ultimate hope for the Christian is. With that in mind, we're going to begin on this first part of the series in Romans chapter 8. I'm entitling this message, The Redemption of Our Bodies. It's a word for word out of what the Apostle Paul has to say to the church in Rome. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read through verses 22 to 25. And then we're going to go back and unpack it in a fashion that gives evaluation to what we get wrong in our understanding. Why do, why do we make the mistake? What, do, what have we missed? And that's what we're going to take a look at. Romans chapter 8. 1757. Page 1757 in the Pew Bibles. Alright, starting in verse 22, Paul writes these words. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what he already has but if we hope for what we do not yet have we wait for it patiently it's a, uh, it really is the pinnacle of uh, Paul's entire letter as he has traced the story of redemption to uh, the church in Rome. First of all, starting with the recognition that Jews and Gentiles alike are both under sin. And that the only avenue to God is after Abraham. But being Jewish doesn't make you a child of Abraham. Having the faith of Abraham makes you a child of Abraham. Therefore, you are saved, justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
he'll go on to say that this faith produces for us a new life. And that culminates kind of in chapter 5. In chapters 6 through chapter 8, right where we're at now, the apostle here talks about what that life looks like. He'll start in chapter 6 by saying, so can you keep on sinning in the new life? What do you think? Can you? The idea here is not that you never sin. Well, that would be foolish, right? What does John tell us? He who says he's without sin deceives. Yeah, you're just lying to yourself. Sin is a continual existence for you, but you cannot continue like you used to. Think about time before Christ. Think about time before the Holy Spirit. If it was wrong, who cares? I mean, maybe if I get caught, right? But I mean, ultimately, I don't care. Except now that I have the Spirit of God living in me, I care. Because the primary work of the Spirit that lives within you is convicting you of sin. So you might be able to hate your neighbor in the past, but you're not going to be able to live with yourself anymore as a Christian. You cannot continue in sin. In chapter 7, he says, but I recognize that there's still a struggle. He said there's these two laws that battle within me. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. He culminates that chapter by saying, who, who, what a wretched man am I? Uh, that, you might see this in verse 24. It's close to where we're at. Chapter 7 to verse 24. What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from, what's it say? Do you see the body of death? Who will rescue me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul recognizes there's still a problem and it's found within our flesh, folks. It's found within our bodies. Now, let me make sure I make something very clear. Humanity and having a body is not evil. God made human bodies and he made them good. Amen? Amen. The problem is ours have been perverted and corrupted such that you're born into this world with a dead spirit and perverted desires. You're going to overdo it, all right? Every one of us is going to overdo it. I should not have eaten as many cheeseburgers at at McDonald's as I did. But the cravings of the flesh say never enough. And that is a perversion of what God has made good. And like the apostle, every one of us here should say, who will save me? All right, what a wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death? Which gets us into chapter 8. So this is where it gets awesome. Chapter 8 starts out by the Apostle recognizing both, I'm going to use a big word here, okay? Dichotomy of man. Dichotomy means there's two parts to you. There's a physical part, and there's an invisible part, all right? There's a material part, and there's an immaterial part. There's a body, and there's a spirit, right? Because your spirit has been made new. And this is the words that Jesus says to Martha when she says, if, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who dies, if he believes in me, will live. Isn't that nuts? What do you mean, Jesus? If you die, you'll still live? You're confusing me there. And it's because there's this dichotomy in man. Your physical body will die, but your spirit, as Jesus says, will never die. So look at eight, how it starts out. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no one who can bring any charge against you. Nobody can bring accusation against one who has been redeemed inwardly. If you have the Spirit of God, you will never die. This is is worth amen, right? If you have the Spirit of God, you will never die. Amen. Amen. That's incredible. It's really, really, really good news. But here's the problem. You still have flesh. 
you still have flesh. So the, the first error that I want us to look at is simply this. We have failed to recognize our sin nature. We have failed to recognize our sin nature. This is predominantly a problem in our time and in our age. Even though it's been a problem for all times, it is worse than ever today. If anybody is into the subject of apologetics, learning about the faith, defending the faith, you will find that there is encountered in our world today something called the new atheism. And these are atheists who are ravaged, ravaged, they're on the attack. They're on the attack against Christians. And one of their favorite things to say in the evaluation of whether or not you could be good without God is this. We don't need God to be good. They do their evaluating horizontally. The majority of the world, when you ask them this question, are you a good person? Will answer what? Yeah, hey, are you a good person? Come on, this church now, don't lie. Are you a good person? No. You are not a good person. The only way in which you convince yourself you're a good person is by saying, I don't have sin. Well, we already looked at that, didn't we? What does John say? He who says, I have no sin, deceives. Yeah, we all know you ain't good. You could tell us all day long, you're a good person. You are only fooling yourself. This is what they want to claim. We don't need God to be good. The predominant atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, have you got heard, heard of this guy? He wrote The God Delusion, really, really, really famous guy. He wrote a couple years back that um, th- this evaluation that it's actually religion that makes people bad. And uh, there were a few, this was on Twitter, and you know how people like to fight online. I don't know if you know that. Don't get into it. But they, they like to argue back and forth on Twitter. And so one Christian does, and one of these atheists responds, and here was her response. She says, good people are those who don't do bad things. That's the way in which our world and our culture today has come to understand whether you are good or bad. Do you do bad things? Oh, you're getting honest. Yeah, when, when you're first posed with that question, though, you know what you and I do? We feel in the depths of our hearts a desire to say, I'm not as bad as them. I, I do good things. I'm not as bad as some people. And we tend to think that within ourselves, there is a measure of goodness that can be achieved without who? Without God. This is completely wrong. This is completely wrong. And the mistake that we've made is that we see sinful as something we do rather than something we are. Did you catch that? That's the problem. We have interpreted sinful as something we do and not as something that we are. It's not a popular message, by the way. I'm not sure you came to the right church today to hear this. But <laughs> Don't take my word for it. Look what the Word of God says. Psalm 51, David writes these words. Surely I was sinful at birth. That's hard for a lot of people to hear. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What are you going to tell me a little baby does bad things? You're going to tell me that a, you're going to tell me a baby is a sinner because baby doesn't do anything bad. Hey, you missed the definition. You've bought into the lie of the culture. That's not what defines you as bad. You are sinful and not good. Because you have been woven in the corruption of the curse. That's why we are sinful. 
From the time he was conceived, sinfulness was part of his nature. James chapter 1, in the question of what do you do with temptation? And, and, and you're not allowed to say God's tempting me. That's what some people back uh, in Pastor James' day wanted to uh, claim. Well, it's God that's tempting me. He says God doesn't tempt you. God doesn't tempt or is tempted. He says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by what? Where, where did that come from? I remember being in college having to ask, where does sin come from? My professor pointed right here. Look at the source of it. It was found within you already. It was there already. Temptation is external, right? But the evil desire comes from within. It comes because you and I have been corrupted by this world. Romans 3, as Paul has made his argument, and you should study this a little bit more if you have some time. He says, all have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even Pastor Ryan. There's not even one. There's no one who does good. Uh, the, the problem here is that we have failed to recognize our sin nature. I, I got good news, though. Uh, it's in Romans 8. Look at the passage that we read in verse 23. After he talks about the whole creation groaning, verse 23 says, Not only so, but we ourselves, the verb here is going to be groan, but before he says that, he describes us. We ourselves, who, look what it says, have the first fruits of, of the Spirit. Do you see that? That's the good news. The sin nature that indwells you spiritually has been replaced by the Spirit of God. You will never die spiritually. You have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even though you have a sin nature that's still found corruption within your body, you have a spirit that desires to please God. For us to see this, and I'm going to try to move as fast as I can here, jump back in chapter 8 to verse 5. Go back a few, few verses. Chapter 8, verse 5, he says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The, man, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is what? Life. And peace. This is good news, you guys. Verse 7 is a really important one here. The sinful mind is hostile to God. So, without the Spirit, we are, like God said in the garden, dead. Or like Paul says in Ephesians, dead. Without the Spirit, your spirit is dead. There is not any part of you that responds to God. Look what it says. It's hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it. Do you see this? There is nothing within you naturally that has the ability to be good. That's this. And unless the church understands this fully, do you know what you will downplay? And it, it might seem like it's uh, not connected. We're going to connect it this morning, but you won't care about resurrection. If you don't care about this, if you have failed to understand that corruption is not something that has just affected you spiritually, but it has affected you physically, you will never see the need for resurrection. Look just a little bit further down as we work our way back to our passage. Verse 9, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, 
Watch this now. Your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if, now verse 11 is the main one. This is the one that's really awesome. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, what do we call that? Yeah, you're still tracking with me, right? Jesus raised from the dead is Easter. He is risen. That's right. If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, look what it says. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. What's that called? Resurrection. That's called resurrection. See, if you miss this, you will not connect the dots to see the need to appreciate and hope for resurrection. All right, that's the first problem. The second problem is this. We have failed or we've retreated from our function in creation. So we fail to understand our function in creation. What we're here for. There has been uh, more predominantly in our world today, I think because of the onset of how bad things look, and because of an eschatology that teaches eschatology just as the way of understanding the end times, right? Christ is returning. Amen? Amen. He's returning. Well, how's that all going to work out? Um, and uh, there is a belief that thinks that we're just here till he rescues us and we escape. It's this idea that we just got to get out of here. There a, a lot of Christians think that today. That really we're simply wait, we're waiting out the clock till Jesus returns and then we're out of here. Is that what God has in mind for you? Is that really his hope for you right now? Is that you just kind of sit on the bench? Right? My body's not working right. The tongue of the shoe is flapping. So I'm just going to sit. I'm going to wait it out. Game, game will be over soon enough. Is that what God really has in mind? So let's see if we can answer this question real quick. Why did God make man? Uh, let's turn in our Bibles back to Genesis 2. Flip all the way back. It's on page 2. <laughs> I don't know. It might be. I'm hoping you can find it, though. Genesis chapter 2. I'm, I'm going I'm to read through it. I'd like you to uh, follow along. And I uh, want you to try to answer this question. Why did God make man? Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. And no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord had not yet sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we got a little bit here in verses 10 through 14 about rivers. Go to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now God, the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and birds of the air. And the, the story goes on. Did you catch what it was? You got it. Exactly. Look at these verses. Five, there was no one to work the ground. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And ladies, you're not off the hook. Right? What does it say? He made the woman as a what? So you get to work too. (laughs) Except the problem is you and I today, we live in a culture that's fixated upon our comfort and ease and retirement and kick your feet, kick your feet up and uh, take a load off and let's get machines to do it and let's hire those people that'll do the hard work for us. And that's our culture and that's our world. And we don't want to work. You know what we've done? We've woven that kind of philosophy into the church. And we forgot that God has us here to work, not to get bailed out, not to sit down and cry. He has us here for a specific function. We are here to work, and we've retreated from that. That's a major problem. The reason why this is a problem is because when we think of God's end game, we don't think that he's going to restore this. If this is what he made you for, this is what he restores you to. Did you catch that? If he made you to work, then his repair within you is such that you can do what he made you for. Not so that you can be bailed out at the end, or that we have some uh, mystical, hyper-spiritual idea of walking in fields praising God. That's not what it's about. As much as whatever cover of your favorite devotional or Christian book makes it look like, that's not what it's about. He has you here to work and to take care of that which he made. He says to the man, look, I want you to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Subdue the earth, multiply and fill it. That's what he made you for. So that as if God were here, you and I would be characterizing godliness in his place. Doing what God would do as if he were here himself. He made us to work. But see, if we miss that, then we miss the idea that he's going to restore that. And so again, we fail to see the hope of resurrection. All right, I'm going to try it. Move as fast as I can. Here we go. Number three, we have made going to heaven the ultimate goal. I would be willing to bet that for the majority of your Christian life, this is what you have been taught is the end of the story. And you know what? All the best songs are this, right? When we all get to heaven, right? I'll fly away. Oh, I'll fly away. Right? I mean, it's the best song. It's totally, and we're going to keep singing those songs, by the way. I'm not going to erase those just because they're only fixated on heaven. But I have to tell you this morning, that's not the goal. Going to heaven is not the end of the story. I want to see if I can piece this together a little bit. And um, again, I'm going to try to move as fast as I can through this. You have, Tom, will you come up here for a moment? I haven't planned this. This is off the cuff here. All right. Tom's going to be our Christian, right? So Tom, at some point, has like put his faith in Jesus Christ. He is now saved, all right? I'm going to be the rebel, all right? The gospel was presented to me. Even though I can see God, I choose not to worship him. In fact, I try to find every excuse to explain everything without God. All right? Everybody get where we're at? Okay. Both of us walk through life, and then both of us die 
At this point, what happens to us? Think about this for a minute. You've seen a dead body, right? You've, you've, you've heard of people at funerals say, oh, they're, they're not here any longer. <laughs> well, they're right there. Right? I mean, if, if the body's there, they're right there. All right, you can sit down. I've come through with that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I'll, I'll pick up the metaphor in, in a minute here. But here's the, <laughs> here's the idea. Death rips a human in two. Death tears you into the two components that make you. Your spirit is no longer united with the body, but that which was made physical of the earth and that which was made spiritual of the heavens are now torn, such that one goes back to the earth and the other goes to the spiritual realm. Now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, what's Paul say? There is therefore no condemnation. So without sin having affected, and you will never, you will never die again, you can go into the holiness and the presence of God because you have his spirit. So when Tom dies, his spirit goes to heaven, but his body goes into the earth. When I, as the rebel, die, I'm still dead in my sins. So my spirit cannot be in communion with God. Therefore, my body goes into the ground, but my spirit goes into Sheol. My spirit goes into Hades. My spirit goes to hell. One is in heaven spiritually. One is in hell spiritually. Both bodies are where? In the ground. Now here's the thing. God has not placed judgment over us at this point. God has yet to declare his judgment for us. Heaven and hell are simply holding cells until Jesus returns. You know that's what we're waiting for, right? When the king comes back, the Bible says the dead will be raised. That's the dead good and the dead wicked, all will be raised. In that moment, when the trumpet sounds and Jesus returns, those in heaven will return with Jesus, with new resurrected bodies, and they will face judgment at that point. But the judgment is called, within the book of Revelation, it's called the Bema Seat, where you receive rewards. And the Bible says that every one of us, having received our crowns, will cast them back to the, to the Lamb from which they came. And that's how we'll worship God forever. That's the way it goes for the believer. But for the unbeliever, their spirit will come out of hell, be united again to a resurrected body where they will face a judgment called the great white throne. If you find yourself in front of a great white throne, you, that is a bad day. You know that's a bad day right then. You want to be on the beam of seat. You want to be on the first resurrection, not the second. For the second one are going to be found as the books are open, your name's not here. I'm looking for your name on the roll. It ain't here. And you can go to Jesus all day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? I went to church my whole life. I paid 10% of all that I had. And he'll say, you've got to depart from me. I don't know who you are. I have no relationship with you. And it says at this point that the hell in this, this dungeon, this holding cell that was created for the demons and the devil, that's what it was made for. And death itself will all be cast into what the book of Revelation symbolizes as a lake on fire. It's a place of utter torment and destruction and departure from the loving presence of God. And both death and Hades as well will be cast there. The end of the story is not going to heaven. For the story continues. And I'd like you to turn there with me. We've been in Genesis. Now I want you to go all the way to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation. The very second to last chapter, chapter 21. 
if, if you'd like, again, for further study, chapter 20. And we don't have time to go through today, but that's the one that recounts these two resurrections. All right? Chapter 20 talks about the first resurrection of the righteous, and it concludes with the resurrection of the wicked. But 21 is what I want you to see, is the end of the story. Here it is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you, do you remember the garden? Do you remember what it was before sin? The Lord used to walk in the, in the coolness of the afternoon with Adam and Eve. He was right there with them. You could see him face to face because he had no sin. We don't get that today. We don't have that privilege today. You will hear. For that will be restored. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. We have incorrectly in our churches made going to heaven the end of it. And because of that, you and I, for the majority of our time, think that being disembodied, right? That's what that does. My spirit's with God. And that's the end of it. That's what we're aiming for. Some glad they all fly away. But that's not the end of the story. And if we can reshift our hope such that we understand our full nature needs to be restored. He made us body, soul, and spirit. All right, Soul and the spirit have a recovery made by the indwelling of God's spirit. But our bodies still need repair. Our bodies still need to be made new. We need to, we need to recognize that. Secondly, we need to know that he made us for a function. And it's, it's not to disembodiedly play harps on clouds. I don't care what anyone who died and came back claims to say. That's not your function. Your function is to work, to take care of the creation, to glorify God by what he has made you for. And then lastly, we need, to, we need to fix how we understand the end of the story so that we know going to heaven is a temporary thing. When you die and you go to heaven, you go there to wait until Christ returns. And, he's, and by, the, by the decree of the Father, he says, that's enough time. Time's up. You're going back. And you're not going back as a lamb. You're going back as a lion. And that day, the spirit and the body will be reunited again onto resurrection. Here's what I want us to do with that. Number one is this. We need to reframe our hope. We need to reframe our hope. I'm going to find this conclusion out of the book of 2 Peter. If you're in the habit of making notes in your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 right now. I also have it printed in your sermon notes. I'm going to have it up here on the screen. Look what Peter writes. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way. He's talking about the, uh, the burning of creation. What kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God in speed, it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. You see that? Yes. Verse 13, this is our hope. 
We need to reframe it. We need to make sure that we see it properly because it's going to affect what you do on, on earth. It's going to affect how you live. It might even affect how many cheeseburgers you decide to eat. Because if the body matters to God, it should matter to you. And he's going to repair it and give you a brand new one today. Not in the old way, not in the old order of things, but with a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Secondly is this. When he says in uh, chapter 8, which, which we read, I'm going to turn back there briefly to grab the context. As he's talking about hope, you remember this part? He says in verse 24, For in this hope we are saved, but who hopes for what he already has? Who here has a resurrected body? Anybody? Nope. Is the knee still clicking, Marvin? <laughs> click, click. Yeah. Still waiting, right? So he has hope. He has hope. He doesn't have it yet. And that's what he's saying here. So who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait. And what does wait mean? Wait means work. Wait doesn't mean sit down and cry. Wait doesn't mean hang up shoes. Wait means work. I want you to see this from Peter. So once again, since everything will be destroyed in this manner, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. That's what you work for right now. That's what it means to work here as a Christian. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that the gift of God for salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of you. It's not of works so that no one can boast. It's a gift from God that God has made you as his workmanship and has prepared for you to do good works. Things that he's planned in advance for you to do. That's what you're to do. Verse 14. So then, look what it says. Make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. This is what you're to be doing. When Paul writes, you need to wait, Peter fills in the gaps. So that waiting doesn't mean sitting around. You ever push the elevator button and just wait? Who else does that drive nuts? Right? Uh, how about when the light turns yellow right at that, look, oh, geez, I got to stop, right? Because you know you're going to run a red one and you just got to sit there and there's no cars. There's no other cross traffic. Am I the only one that feels this way? Just sick of that red light knows I'm sitting here. I really feel like it knows. And it's kind of mocking me the whole time, looking down at me, just staying red. Yeah, I, I don't like to sit and do nothing. And God's plan for you is not to sit and do nothing. It's to be busy Working Now is your chance to work. Make every effort, Peter says. Lastly, I want you to see this. Wait patiently, because that's what Paul says. He says, if we wait, we wait patiently. And waiting patiently means watching. Waiting patiently means watching. Again, I'm going to turn to 1 Peter 3. I want you to see something that's repeated. If you, you might have caught this already, but I have it highlighted for you up here. Verse 12. As you look forward... To the day of God and speed, it's coming. Verse 13, keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth, the home of the righteous. So, dear friends, since you're looking, what? Looking forward. Hey, are you looking? Are you watching for Christ's return? Jesus will tell the parable like this. A master left a bunch of servants in charge, but he didn't tell them when he was coming home. Right? Servants, he says, you guys are in charge. Take care of my stuff. I'll be back. And then some of the servants, right, when the master's away, mice are going to play, right? And they're not taking care of things. 
And when the master comes back, he sees this and he recognizes this. And he says, you wicked servants. And he casts them out. He says he has them beaten with many blows for they knew what they should do and they did not do it. How much more should it be for those who know the good that they should do? Church, you and I need to be watching. Jesus is going to return. And you're going to do well in the Christian life. You're going to do well if you keep your eyes peeled. My dad used to say, keep your eyes peeled. How do you do that? I don't even know. But (laughs) keep your eyes peeled, he would say. And um, this is our task. To wait patiently means to watch for his return. So I leave you with this question. If the redemption of my body is my hope, if resurrection is my hope, what should I do now? That's my answer. Keep running with the help of the Spirit. Your bodies are, are, uh, are not awesome. <laughs> Such a hurtful thing to hear from a pastor, right? Your, your body's not awesome. Uh, they're broken. They need repair. The Holy Spirit is for you and I that which repairs us and keeps us going. Don't sit out of the game of life. Don't try to kick back. Don't think that it's escapist theology that's going to save you. Get busy. Work. Keep running. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.